This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. During the COVID-19 pandemic, domestic violence has significantly increased and with the restrictions, many victims are finding it that much harder to reach out for help because they are trapped at home with their abuser. It's well established that rates of domestic violence increase during times of crisis. And while the world continues to grapple with the pandemic spread, the rise of domestic violence in Australia remains one of our country's most prevalent issues. Today on the Gender Card podcast, I speak to three esteemed scholars in the field, Zoe Rathis, Professor Susan Harris-Rimmer and Associate Professor Molly Dragowitz, about why family violence thrives in isolation and whether Australia is doing enough to combat that. Welcome to the Gender Card. Firstly, we'll go to Susan Harris-Rimmer. Professor Rimmer is the Director of the Griffith University Policy Innovation Hub. Hello, Susan. Hello, Nance. Susan, what's your perspective on what's happened since this pandemic has really swept the world? Can you see the effects of this already, particularly on this very gender-related issue of domestic violence? Well, yes. So, unfortunately, yes, we can already see the impact. So, governments worldwide, when they reverted to lockdowns to contain the coronavirus, it was, for most of us who work in this field, immediately apparent that home is a dangerous place for many women, children, LGBTI plus individuals. So we knew that as governments were telling residents to stay home to protect themselves and others, that we'd have this shadow pandemic that we've always had in our society around the scourge of domestic violence, intimate partner and family violence. But it is depressing that so few governments, even though it was very obvious to those of us who work in the field that this would happen, was very depressing that there didn't seem to be any plans to deal with it or any kind of concepts that for so many women and children, home is the most dangerous place to be. So we're getting reports, data is kind of coming in from surveys and various other things around the world. We know generally that violence against women increases in any type of emergency. So we've known that in conflict and hurricanes and all kinds of emergencies around the world, we've seen that phenomenon. And that's what seems to be the case here that we are getting more and more reports, but we're also seeing some real difficulties with reporting at all. And so we still don't quite know what the the impact has been around the world. And of course, we've still got a lot of places in lockdown, including Victoria has gone back into lockdown. But one thing we do know, and this is the point I want to make clear, domestic violence was a pandemic long before COVID-19 and has never been treated by governments with the kind of seriousness it deserves. So we're looking at 243 million women and girls between the ages of 15 and 49 subjected to sexual or physical violence by an intimate partner in the last 12 months. So one in three women in their life. So I keep thinking, how do we define what is a crisis? How do we define what is emergency? As far as I can see, it was already an emergency and this health crisis has has made it worse. And now people who are victims are finding themselves isolated they maybe lost their jobs, they're suffering anxiety and financial stress. 
it is a perfect storm. Are you disappointed by the federal government's response to this domestic violence upsurge? I am. I mean, there have been some policy innovations around, uh, you know, putting people in hotels and trying to support, you know, saying that people who work in domestic violence are critical workers or essential workers. There has been some innovative policy responses around the world around um you know, say designating pharmacies as places where women can use code words to report domestic violence. But generally speaking, for something so predictable, it is a deeply depressing response. And then in the midst of it, we had the Hannah Clark inquiry debacle. It was described as uh, incredibly disappointing from uh, the one dissenting senator, Rex Patrick. I think he described the uh, inquiry as a failure for Hannah Clark and her children. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, so for those people listening who might not know the background, it was a really terrible case in Queensland of a, a mother and her kids in a very difficult separated family situation where the husband set the, the car on fire and killed all of them and, and tried to kill himself. And there was a parliamentary inquiry started in the Senate at a federal level around that particular case because there were certain aspects to that case around coercive control but no previous incidents of violence and also some issues around the family violence interactions between that family and the family law system. So they started an inquiry, they reviewed all the literature, quite a good review of the literature, and then decided just to stop and to not take any submissions and to just list a range of consult, you know, basically saying there's already been a lot of reviews in this area. Months ahead of schedule as well, wasn't it, Sue? Months ahead. So they basically gave up. Uh, And this was in a context where Parliament wasn't sitting very often and there was a certain amount of chaos. But it it was on the anniversary of the incident. It was an absolute debacle and it for all of us in the field it felt like a slap in the face it just felt like in the context of this bigger crisis we're going to give up on this issue so it was it was really depressing uh, <laughs> as an outcome and, and molly and zoe and i all signed a letter an open letter um to basically say to the parliament that we were very angry at that outcome and all the reasons why and it got quite a bit of attention since then there has been a different inquiry is set on foot, but, you know, the damage has been done in terms of the sort of signal it sends to people about how women's lives are valued and how we want to make structural change around this issue of family violence. Zoe, were you incredibly disappointed by that if you had signed that letter? Obviously, you had great concerns about the way that that was handled and the messages that that sent to the community. I have some sympathy and do understand the reasons why people might have thought, do we keep on looking at this and looking at this and when do we ever implement and improve things? And I understand a level of frustration about that. On the other hand, once an inquiry has been established, and particularly when it is done in the wake of the kind of tragedy that occurred with Hannah Clark, you can't then just leave it half done. One of the things that we know is the importance of validating the experiences of those who've been involved in family violence. And to do that invalidates the experience of that whole family and all of the people who've been supporters. So we simply can't do things in that way. And we have to learn at a policy level the extraordinary consequences of the ways in which these kinds of issues are managed 
publicly, if they are not managed with great sensitivity, we continue to silence the community who is dealing with family violence. And I think one of the things about the, the Hannah Clark story is that this was a very white middle-class community that was impacted and in some ways the tragedy is that's why that got so much airplay because a great majority of Australians knew this could be me, this could be uh, my family. So it is an opportunity to take some advantage of that wide understanding as well and ensure that we then move forward and that we are inclusive of all the more vulnerable groups, which of course such an inquiry would have been. But yes, the policy issue of bringing that to an end, I think was quite devastating. Now we have yet another inquiry, which ironically is still travelling along parallel to the inquiry called by Pauline Hanson, which has never been cancelled continues to go ahead, took a great deal of time from various groups, again, at the beginning of the year, responding to that inquiry because of great concerns about the context and language used to set it up, which was basically women lie about violence. And Molly Dragowitz, is this something you're concerned about as well with the way that that particular inquiry was handled and and in the time since? Well, I think the other side of this is that it's not just the other survivors and the other families of victims and the directly affected family and friends of the victims in that particular case. It's also that other abusers see this response as well, and they're telling their partners, see, nobody cares. Nobody's going to do anything. I can do whatever I want. There will be no consequences. So go ahead and report, see what happens. So, I mean, that's always the other side when we're talking to other survivors that are around in the community, other women that are concerned that they might be a potential victim. But we're also talking to the other abusers and the abuser allies as well. So yeah, that kind of disregard or dismissal of domestic and family violence as, oh, we've been there, done that, we've heard it before. It's really hurtful and insulting and it also emboldens those abusers. And so it really does have big ramifications in the community. For sure. Anytime we're talking about violence and abuse in the in in the public sphere in any way. People are listening to the stories and they're also watching to see how other people respond. So it is really important how we talk about it. Your specialty is really in that that question of technology and domestic violence. Have you noticed any impact there, any changes there, particularly in these, these last few crazy months? Well, there's been all kinds of implications, as you might imagine, around domestic violence and technology. We don't have any brand new data yet, from Griffith anyway, about how technology use has changed during COVID, but we do have anecdotal information from a lot of the services and the professionals that deal with domestic and family violence. So we know from the research on technology and domestic violence that it's a real problem for domestic violence survivors, that it gets worse when couples separate. And related to Zoe's work, we know that the abuse of technology is often really a problem around parenting arrangements and exchange of the children and communication with children when they might be having some parenting time where they're staying at the abuser's house. So we know those are all issues for survivors and their children. 
But we also know that the service providers have been making a lot of innovations in the face of COVID to see how they can use technology to better support survivors at home. And these are things that can potentially be carried over some of the innovations to better serve women in especially rural and regional and remote areas where there's not a lot of services on the ground. So hopefully we can gather some of those learnings and the knowledge that's been gained from this forced experiment about using technology to reach more survivors and support them more effectively. It's been such a quickly changing environment, hasn't everyone having to to isolate? Has that been difficult even from a criminological perspective for police to, to keep up with? Have they had to radically change from what you have seen as well? From what I hear from the police officers, I know they're just spending a really disproportionate amount of their time. I live on the border, so everybody's redeployed to dealing with the border situation and there's just fewer police officers available to deal with domestic violence calls. So anecdotally, we're hearing from survivors via service providers that they are not having what are considered to be less serious domestic violence incidents responded to as seriously. So when it's not a serious physical assault, maybe it's a breach, maybe it's some of this technology facilitated abuse, we're hearing anecdotally that some survivors are not having a great experience during COVID. So hopefully that can be rectified as things get back to normal. Zoe Rathis, you have worked in the domestic violence sector for years before going into academia. What have you heard since the onset of COVID as to how this has impacted in the courts, in the community? Following on from what Molly said, it's interesting from from the stories I've been told and what I've read, as always, there is a variety of responses. So, you know, there are some stories of women who've had really good responses from police because for all of the problems, there's been a lot of work done with police For in the state of Queensland, for example. You know, the Domestic Violence Act first came in in 1989. Now, we were behind other states, but we did do that in 1989. And from that point forward, we started working on police training. That's a long time ago, although for me, it doesn't seem that long ago. For my students, they look at me, roll their eyes and know that it was before they were born. So the reality is that we mustn't forget the changes that we have also been successful in bringing about. And we do have a police service now that holds a much better understanding about domestic violence than I could have ever imagined when I was a young practitioner in the 1980s. And so there are experiences where, of course, police do have understood as a collective the, the kinds of things that Sue mentioned at the beginning, that this pandemic was going to create a shadow pandemic behind doors. There's no police who's been on the beat for any length of time who didn't understand that that was going to happen. The question becomes their ability to deal with it, the exact training that particular uh, officers might have. So, yes, as Molly says, I'm very aware that there are, there are police that I've spoken to who have been redirected from domestic violence duties or other ordinary duties to border duty because they really can't leave the same police at the border all the time. So they're, they're rotating. But so I think that it, that our Premier even made an announcement that 10% of police time would be going into that. And I suppose that misbehaviour by many and not simply those who've been named and shamed in the media, but misbehaviour by many who've remained nameless 
means that we know that people will, of course, not all tell the truth. So, yes, we ne- we need police on the borders, but it does uh, divert police powers. In relation to what's been happening in the courts themselves, I do want to say that I think that in some ways the family court has done quite an amazing job at the moment. They have uh, specifically responded to what is happening and have agreed to work in partnership with women's legal services and responded very quickly to women's legal services being the ones to say to them, do you realise what's happening with COVID? So the Chief Justice had already produced a statement about being sensible and trying to talk with your partner or your ex-partner and trying to come up with arrangements, you know, which are manageable. But after Women's Legal Services approached him about the reality, he then established the COVID-19 list. He's been also very transparent about the fact that it was Women's Legal Services who were the ones who said, do something specific. And this list has provided a way for people to get very urgent hearings about issues. They must be specifically related to COVID. So it might be a question about a closed border. It might be a question about a closed contact centre where the exchange of the child has occurred. And of course, now in Victoria, again, we're going to go back to closed schools for people who avoid any interaction with each other and exchange their kids only through school. That's not available. Now, of course, the the next question is, will all these matters be dealt with in an excellent manner by every judicial officer? Uh, No, there there will be mistakes made. It will be very difficult for some people to produce the level of evidence that they need to show the particulars of what their exact situation is and why it is a COVID-19 matter and what they might need. There's some very subtle things that are going on and my main research has been on family violence and how it works in family law and it can be very subtle and it is one of the great difficulties that victims of family violence have in the family law system of finding the words in their material to explain the kinds of subtle abuse that many people are exposed to, particularly what we might call coercive and controlling violence. So one of the things that I've been told by workers, and I've also read in the international press that this is happening, that controlling men, when they have the children, so maybe they are the ones that the children are living with, or maybe the kids go there on an early visit in COVID-19, and so they're with dad. If the mother works in any field where she could be potentially in any way considered at risk. So she's a nurse or a pharmacist or a childcare worker or whatever, no matter exactly what her relationship might be to anyone with COVID-19, this of course is now a new weapon for an abuser to say, I'm not letting the kids come back to you, you're at risk and so I'm keeping the kids. And so those are some of the kinds of applications that are then made to the court. And look, it's been happening both ways, I have to say. There's been women not wanting to send kids. I think in the end, if we do, when all this is over and one can do a full analysis of the cases, my guess is there'll be quite a gendered breakdown in the kinds of reasons women are afraid of sending children to fathers, this is my guess though, my informed guess. Women are afraid of sending kids to the fathers because the fathers refuse to guarantee that they will 
self-isolate if something goes wrong and that they will abide by social distancing rules. One story that I heard is a father who, when he had the kids, intentionally took them out in public and sent photos of that to the mother to taunt her about safety issues. So, you know, that's one of the kinds of things that happen. Men, on the other hand, stop kids because they're going to allege that the woman is in a profession which brings her uh, into some risk or they'll allege something about her partner, which is the other very common. Yeah, men don't trust other men. Some of the main complaints about ex-wives in family law is actually not about ex-wives. It's about their new partners. It's actually men still afraid of men. It's not men afraid of women. Susan Harris-Rimmer, is this, uh, are these trends something that you've noticed on an international level or is Australia a bit of an outlier here in some ways in the way that domestic violence has been tackled? Well, I think this, this intersection of domestic violence and family law is a problem all over the world and I can, you can clearly see where families are being split apart by COVID restrictions. You can see these kinds of dynamics. It just Everything's heightened. So all the, as the Secretary-General said, you know, inequality is the... Is the stuff of our times. Every inequality that was already in our society is exacerbated and heightened and laid bare by COVID-19. And so that's what you're seeing, a much more kind of display of, you know, gender inequality in, in many facets, you know, whether it's this she session or women being sent back to the 50s and out of the workplace as the, their jobs go, increased numbers than men or being locked out of emergency recovery plans or locked out of infrastructure stimulus spending or childcare and, and, and look at the debacle aged care is. So you're seeing these kinds of inequalities just laid bare everywhere. And one of one of the things that in this space that gives me pause is prison as kind of carceral solutions for domestic violence are also really problematic, right? We don't necessarily want prison to be the way we deal with some of these issues and prison is an unsafe place for people to be as well. So we don't want kids in prison. We don't want women in prison. We don't want all these women in prison because of the way domestic violence laws are working. There's a whole range of issues with our prison system that COVID has also highlighted. And all around the world, you're seeing this problem too. Locking people up is often not the answer to social issues either. And we haven't quite cracked that. And and COVID responses is laying that bare too. So yes, what we see in Australia is what you get in a society that has a strong social protection policy and what you see in other countries where there is very little social protection policies is far worse and even you know even more scary like america basically uh it's it's quite astonishing what we're seeing there and you, you're also seeing access to violence you know web small arms and all kinds of things are much more exacerbated as well in other places so i'm sure the criminologists are currently doing a huge amount of real-time survey of whether there's been an increase in violence or in public spaces as, as well as private spaces but I think from my point of view, we, we should know, we did know about the shadow pandemic. So there is no excuse for ignoring that in our design of health responses, public health responses. So that's just my single point of repeated advocacy. You know, we COVID-19 is a terrible, terrible disease and so is violence against women and we need solutions that deal with both and keep people safe from all kinds of consequences. A coordinated approach, really looking at that. We, we need a public health response that is truly a public health response. So I think when I heard the pandemic was killing men at a greater rate, I thought, well, that's, 
very sad, you know. <laughs> but also I thought, oh, I bet it gets a bigger response, so, you know, because it's men in power are threatened by this. And I think that is the way it's turned out because it kind of threatens older men in particular. I was hoping, I thought it would receive a kind of an emergency level response that it has received. But, you know, the way you deal with the pandemic is also really crucial to social cohesion and we haven't quite got that part right and you know, women need to trust in their government to keep them safe all the time. Yes, with revelations too that almost half of the $150 million in funding that the federal government has promised for domestic violence help won't be available for at least another year. So that is disappointing as well. Yeah. I've been talking to people who run refuges and I've been talking to people who run legal serv- you know, community legal services and I just, my hat, is off. I, I admire their work so much in these incredibly difficult circumstances. Just the sort of creativity that I've seen community organisations employ and and just people of all kinds trying to help each other in these informal networks. It's been really impressive. So while it's a kind of a depressing story overall, I just want to say when we're talking about how all these um, expressions of gratitude to essential workers all over the world my hat is off to domestic violence workers and supporters. All of you do amazing, amazing work and we are grateful. I think that segues beautifully to, to Molly. If I could come back to you, Molly Dragowitz, you're an Associate Professor in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Griffith University's Gold Coast campus. I know a lot of your expertise is also in, in looking at these really complex forms of violence and abuse. Uh, and you touched on it before, how COVID-19 actually makes it harder for women to get help. Can you explain how that has happened? Well, we've talked a little bit today about how, you know, women that are in a separated situation, co-parenting with an abuser, and some of the special challenge that they're facing with COVID with the restrictions on movement and the desire to isolate and keep your family safe. But I think about the women that are stuck in that relationship with the abuser at home 24 hours a day and you know that's equally horrific to consider because if you think about the dynamics and the ways that children are involved in domestic and family violence and then you combine that with everybody schooling at home so if you're living with an abuser and you have children we're seeing this as susan pointed out this heightening or exacerbation of gendered stereotypical roles and inequalities So we see the burden of taking care of that homeschooling, taking care of the family, feeding everyone, keeping the house clean, all of those home and childcare duties falling on the mothers. And we know that in abusive relationships, this is one of the pressure points that abusers use to not only do psychological abuse and emotionally abuse their partner by telling them constantly they're a terrible mother and they can't do anything right and they don't even know how to load the dishwasher. So for a lot of those mothers, the time when their partner is out of the house at work or the children are out of the house at school takes a little bit of the pressure off. So a lot of abusers demand that Mothers keep the children quiet and out of the way so they don't have to deal with the everyday, the challenges of parenting uh, that are involved in everyday life of keep getting your children raised and educated. 
So I think that those pressures are likely really heightened right now with abusers at home, and I'm imagining those demands to keep the kids quiet and out of the way just must be, you know, it breaks your heart to think about the stress level involved in trying to manage all of that. There's just not those normal releases available, are there? And, and not those other opportunities to even make a quick call or to, to try and seek help from even the small support network you might have. Yeah, but as Zoe said, there are some um, positive responses from service providers and the police. QPS instituted an online reporting option for crimes. And so I'm not sure uh, exactly how much uptake that's had, but there is an option now for women to report online so that they could do that quietly from their phone uh, if that's safe. So that's a new development that has happened due to COVID. So maybe that will stick around again, that innovation if it's working out for people after the pandemic goes away. Zoe, it sounds like you've seen some innovation really across the sector in in quite a lot of different spheres, all of these areas that intersect with trying to deal with this uh, domestic violence. I'm on the management committee of a um, domestic violence organisation that works particularly with immigrant women. And the first thing was that we had to think about how we managed that just on a daily level for our staff and on a management committee. In fact, my first obligation is to my staff. Uh, My staff's first obligation is to our clients. Um, But I have to make sure I have responsibility and a duty of care to our staff. So we've had to think through the best way of providing services. And of course, that has happened all around Australia. So anyone who's on any committee or whatever have been involved in thinking about how does my little space that I'm involved with uh, come up with a plan. We came up with a plan that involved both working from home and still going into work to some extent. And I think that the staff have actually really enjoyed that there has been that ongoing interaction with each other. And it's been done in a COVID safe way, but that's been extremely complex actually to manage. Meanwhile, of course, some of our clients are the most vulnerable. We have clients who have no income at all because they have no entitlement to any Australian benefits. So they are completely tied to their abuser in terms of any financial assistance so that the the organisation where I am has had to make use of the emergency relief system that we have access to because we are seeing some women who have nothing and no entitlements to anything. So that one of the submissions to the new family violence inquiry, the alternative family violence inquiry that is established, I think are, and in fact, that inquiry has a specific term of reference about visas. And I think that one of the things that this, that the federal government needs to do is to look very carefully at the various visa um, requirements that we have in Australia and understand that there are a range of issues and I won't try and go through them all in detail and I'm not necessarily on top of, you know, there's various different kinds and each one has its own little set of rules. But we have situations where women can be in domestic violence situations and have absolutely no entitlement to to income support, to medical care uh, or to any other um, assistance. And this, th- this is really 
uh, unforgivable. We have situations where women might have actually might find themselves um, caught up in family court proceedings, therefore not allowed to leave the country because there are unresolved proceedings, but they may be entitled to no income. It's a little bit like the famous words of our Prime Minister about international students. You know, well, if you don't have any work, go home. You know, we, we, we end up in Australia in this extremely unsatisfactory position of having people from other countries, international guests of various kinds in Australia, in relationships or as students or as seasonal workers or whatever, for whom it's almost impossible to return home, but who do not have any entitlement to assistance here and who may be vulnerable in a range of ways, domestic violence being one of those ways. And this is supposed to be a society that understands social safety net, that, that has a, a deep understanding and a deep commitment to those kinds of values. We're always told about our Australian values. That's a, a gap. Uh, one of the other things that I wanted to say out of what Molly was saying is it's like the usual, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything that we see is an exaggeration of what we already knew. So that all the existing problems in the family law system just find another space to perpetuate themselves. So that although I do believe that the family court is an incredibly hardworking place, I don't think that the general community understands the hours that those judges work, the difficulty of working in an environment where nearly every client is traumatised in some way. And all of the ancillary professionals who work in that system, legal practitioners, family report writers, mediators, and the kind of the next group out, the DV workers, the perpetrator program workers, uh, all these other people, they're all working with uh, traumatised clients, many of whom are never going to be satisfied with any arrangement that they're told that they have to implement in relation to the children. And there's no question that we've come a very, very long way to now have a family law system that at least understands that. But actually getting it right is very difficult. And we know that there are very poor court orders made at times, which actually turn out to be dangerous. We know that some of the professionals working in the system don't have the requisite training and support to get things right. And the research that I've been particularly doing in relation to that is family report writers. So these are the people who do social science family assessments of a family and their recommendations are extremely influential in ultimate outcomes, but also become very influential along the trajectory of a case. If you're a woman who's been through perhaps an interim hearing and you're waiting for a final trial and you've alleged family violence and you're very worried about what the arrangements might be, but the family report writer has not believed you on that, has not accepted that there's really family violence and writes a report that suggests that the family violence isn't as bad as, as the mother says. She might be making it up. Maybe she's exaggerating. Maybe she believes it, but the family report writer doesn't think it's really happening. Anything like that. That makes it extremely difficult even for the woman to proceed at that point. She's not going to get more legal aid. Her lawyer is going to start to tell her to settle because if she doesn't and ends up being perceived as a woman who is now antagonistic to the ongoing relationship between 
her child and the father, but has no basis for that because she hasn't been believed on the violence, she is at risk of the children being moved to live with the father. And this is not just in Australia. This is this is something that, that, that is worldwide in Western, in similar jurisdictions, really since the 19, end of the 1980s, early 1990s, this understandable emphasis that children you know, should have contact with both parents where possible and that children love their separated parents and all of these things which are which are right. But this has led to a great deal of difficulty in it really being understood how dangerous that legacy of family violence is. And I sometimes think that the question that gets asked is, if those children go to dad, will he hit them or will he sexually abuse them? And if the answer is, oh, no, we don't think that's going to happen, then the children are going to be sent to him. Whereas actually the issue is if those children have experienced violence, have lived with it, if they saw their father perpetrate violence against their mother, the consequences of them spending time with the father, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't spend any time, but we need to understand that there are consequences relevant to the family violence from those kids spending time with that father. And it's not about is he going to get his belt out and wallop them like something, you know, from the 1950s when, you know, when dad gets home, we'll get him to deal with you. You know, this isn't what we should be thinking about. So I think these things are very difficult. You know, one of the ways that this is often couched is this idea of parental alienation, which is a very complex term. It's extremely contested, but it does seem to play out in quite a gendered way. And what ends up happening is that where women are hesitant or reluctant to send their children to fathers because of their concerns about abuse that they've experienced and things that they know about that man's, often his kind of inability to nurture and like her complete lack of any experience of having ever seen him nurture. You know, these women then become reluctant to send the children. What happens is that men now have this term and they go, oh, she's alienating the children from me. And all of a sudden it becomes this binary question. Oh, was he abusive or is she an alienator? And this becomes very, very difficult. And in a climate where contact with fathers is so valorised, then the courts look towards ways to make that possible. And it tends to mean that we know that we're alienation claims are raised by fathers, this reduces the likelihood of women being believed in their claims of violence. And that's uh, research that Joan Meyer has done in the United States, where she's specifically undertaken that examination of cases, shows that to be true. I haven't had an opportunity yet to look specifically at cases that have arisen since um, COVID, but just even a quick search in the database that one can do, I can see there are a number of parenting cases where the word COVID is there and the word alienation is there. I see that there's some very interesting research that can be done at the right time where we do analyse what has come out in family law over this period. But we mustn't then think that all that that tells us is, well, what went wrong during COVID? 
because to come back to my original point, these are all underlying issues which are always there. And perhaps COVID brings out more clearly to us some of the areas where we could do much better. It sounds like COVID has exacerbated underlying problems that were already there. Absolutely. And is that something you've seen as well, Molly? I really like Zoe's point about how this focus on this equitable contact or contact with the father as like the most valued outcome in a separation case. And just to think for a moment about all of the things that we're not talking about if we're focused on that. So this idea that physical violence against a child or sexual violence against a child is the only thing or the really most important thing that affects children when in fact as our understanding of trauma grows we know that exposure to the toxic environment where there's abuse taking place even if it's never directly physically aimed at the child children are definitely absorbing that atmosphere they're they're exposed to the violence we used to talk about um, witnessing or being bystanders to violence but now we're starting to understand that children are a core component of coercive and controlling tactics involved in domestic and family violence. So the children are seeing the aftermath of the abuse that's happening to mom. They're being manipulated to say bad things or talk down to the mother. We see abusers interfering with that relationship with what, as Zoe pointed out, is often the primary caregiver of the child. So, so many negative and traumatic impacts that can happen from just being in that atmosphere where that violence is normalized. Because think about what it's like for a child who's witnessed their father abusing their mother, and then everybody has to pretend that it's fine when it's time for you to go spend the weekend at dad's house. And mothers are discouraged from talking about the bad things that have happened. I mean, that is the worst possible response to trauma, to pretend it never happened and ignore and invalidate the child's experiences and fear. I mean, that is a traumagenic set of behaviors. So um, to take the bigger picture into account, sometimes we sometimes think of children as separate from domestic and family violence, but they are truly central to the dynamics in families where there's children. Look, there is this one thing that I want to say And I was struck, I found myself thinking about this right at the beginning when Molly was talking about the risk that women were reporting that because they were seeing uh, that that men were taking advantage of what was going on and, and, and that women became afraid because men were saying things, for example, like uh, what Hannah Clark's um, uh, ex-partner did, that idea that that when one man commits violence, that becomes um, a weapon for other men to use against their partners and that women are afraid of that and start to report it. And the reason why it really struck me when we started talking about that today is I have a piece of artwork that was actually bought from an auction that Women's Legal Service held in the early 1990s. And it is a three, there are three panels on this piece of work and they repeat, but they're in slightly different shades of red. And the panel has a, the, the words kind of down it saying, 
this is not a civilised society. And in it, in the middle, is a tiny little paragraph from the Courier-Mail, and I think it's 1991, a time when, again, in a particular week, a man killed his wife in very dramatic circumstances and everyone, this was going to be the thing that was, you know, going to bring an end to violence against women in Australia. And, in fact, what happened was that domestic violence services were overwhelmed by women ringing to say that their partner had told them that they were going to do the same thing. So we saw that in 1991 and yet in 2019, 2020, the same thing happens when a man kills his wife in broad daylight in the middle-class suburb of Camp Hill, which is about two kilometres from where I'm sitting now. We've still got a long way to go. Is that right, Molly? Well, we do, but there's a lot of incredible work being done. And I guess my hope for post-COVID, whenever that comes, hopefully soon, is that we don't just forget about this and move on, that we actually take the time to learn about the innovations that have happened, look at what worked and what didn't work, and see what uh, new information and approaches we can take going forward. So I hope that there will be some funding for research so that all of this um, may be floating to the surface of dynamics that were happening, but a little less obvious pre-COVID, we can really understand those better. So that we can really learn from this period of time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us, Molly Dragowitz, Zoe Rathus and Susan Harris-Rimmer. Thank you for joining us on The Gender Card. Thank you. And that's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced for the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.